Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. And we'll be considering verses 30 through 32 this morning. And we are still in what uh, could be called the introduction to this sermon series on worship. We are looking at the basic principles of worship in order to then get into the specifics of the parts of worship. We have considered what worship is. And last time we considered why public worship is necessary for the life of a believer. Well, this morning we ask yet another fundamental question concerning worship. And that is how we are to worship. So let us turn our attention now to the reading of God's holy word as we seek to answer this question. Here now, the inspired and errant and infallible word of our Lord from Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 30. Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let us ask His blessing on it. Father, as we now come to this passage and as we come to consider uh, how we are to worship You, Lord, let us come to it with a ready and an open ear, putting aside our own personal wants and desires, our own personal preferences, but we come with a heart longing to learn from You. Father, bless this Word which has gone forth. May the hearts of those here among us receive it with gladness and with joy. And Lord, we pray that this Word which is to be preached will be preached... uh, in the, not in the wisdom and enticing words of man, but in the demonstration and power of the Holy Ghost. Father, we pray what is preached here today is not the opinion of the preacher, 
or even the opinion of Westminster or even the opinion of the RPCNA. Lord, we pray that what is preached here is not the opinion of men, but is the command of the Holy God. So Father, let us receive this with the authority with which it is proclaimed. Thus saith the Lord. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, within the Protestant faith, there are two prevailing principles of worship which guide how most uh, churches conduct their services. The most popular uh, one of these has come to be known as the normative principle of worship. And this principle states that whatever is not forbidden by God to be done in worship is permissible. Whatever is not forbidden is permissible. And this is the position of the Lutherans. Most evangelical churches hold to this as well. And it's even the position of Rome. It is this guiding principle that gives rise to the wide variance in worship styles among different churches. Some churches are very high church and liturgical. They incorporate vestments and candles and incense in the church calendar. And this is most easily seen in Lutheran and Anglican churches, but it's even uh, seen in some uh, Presbyterian and Reformed churches. And then there are others who are low church with very little liturgical elements. These can be anything from your traditional Baptist churches to the modernist non-denominational churches. You can see handbell performances, choirs, rock bands, light shows, old-time hymns, modern music from the radio, skits, stages decorated to look like a football field. You can see basically anything you can think of in these type of churches. And what's interesting is that while there seems to be a very wide variety in the worship practices in these churches, they all are operating from the same principle. That anything that God does not forbid may be done in worship. That anything that is not forbidden in worship is permissible. And this has led to great conflicts within the church over uh, what is 
the preferred style of worship. You may remember several years ago, talk of the worship wars within evangelical churches over whether to be traditional and to sing the old time hymns on a piano or an organ, or to be contemporary, singing the modern songs with a full band accompanying. Very quickly you'll see that this is a major dividing line between those who hold to the normative principle and those who hold to what's called the regulative principle of worship. Our confession of faith states, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited to His own revealed will, will, that He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Simply put, whatever is not commanded by God to be done in worship is forbidden. Our text today is the basis for this principle. And we'll see from it the, applica- uh, the implications of it for our worship. And so the theme of our time together today is that the Lord regulates how He is to be worshipped in the Scriptures. The Lord regulates how He is to be worshipped in the Scriptures. And we'll consider this theme under three heads. First, that divine warrant is required. And next, that strict obedience is commanded. And then finally, we will seek to answer some objections which have been raised against this this principle. So first, let us consider that divine warrant is required. The Lord says, what things soever I command you, observe to do it. It is those things which the Lord commands that are to be done particularly in regards to how He is to be worshipped. This is because of who God is. He is the sovereign Lord of all. The King of kings. The Lord of all creation. The only true and living God. And that is why He tells His people uh, that He is not to be worshipped in the ways of the false gods. He's not to be worshipped in the ways of the heathens. And we see this in verse 30. Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them. After that they be destroyed from before thee. That thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. 
Matthew Henry says, they must not so much as inquire into the modes and forms of idolatrous worship. What good would it do them to know those depths of Satan? Revelation 2.24 It is best to be ignorant of that which there is danger of being infected by. Friends, why would you look at those who are outside of the will of God to determine what you are to do in worship of Him? What height of wickedness it is to seek counsel from the sons of Belial and incorporate their ways into the worship of Jehovah. Verse 31 goes on to call these practices an abomination to God. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth they have done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. Because their idolatrous customs were an abomination to the Lord, the incorporating of them into His worship would make even that an abomination and an affront to Him by which they should serve Him and honor Him and by which they hope to obtain His favor. Brothers and sisters, this is a great evil. And yet thousands of churches across the world are doing this exact thing. This is the sin of syncretism. Taking that which is pagan and wicked and, and painting it to have the appearance of being Christian. This was one of the great sins of Israel. It was one of the great sins within the early church. And it's one of the great prevailing sins throughout the ages. Satan would love nothing more than to infiltrate, deceive, and destroy Christ's church. And there's no easier way for him to do this than by infiltrating the worship practices and corrupting them with his own suggestions. Do not fall prey to this great sin. But it is not just protection from the schemes of Satan that Jehovah regulates his worship. No, divine warrant is required because of God's royal position as sovereign. Yes, He protects you from the schemes of Satan, but that's just secondary. It's because He is King that His warrant is required. If you recall back to our first sermon in the series, when we looked at what worship is, you'll remember that worship is service. It is service rendered unto the Lord because He is the King and we are His people. He is worthy of praise because He is sovereign over all and has all things in subjection to Him. 
Because God is the sole object of religious worship, it is His prerogative to prescribe the mode of it. He is a jealous God. Jealous for His worship. He will not share His glory with another. This is the basis of the second commandment found in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. The first commandment tells us who we are to worship. But the second commandment tells us how we are to worship. The second commandment doesn't say that God is jealous of His people worshiping false gods. No, it says He is jealous of His people worshiping Him in a way that He had not commanded. Remember the incident with the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai while Moses is still atop the mountain and before this commandment was even given to the people? Who was it that was worshipped in the calf? It was Jehovah. Exodus 32 and verses 3 through 5 says, And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he receiving them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. To Jehovah. Or remember uh, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Friends, we must be careful that whatever is done in the worship of the Lord has divine warrant. To fail to do so is not only to violate the second commandment, but to incur the wrath of God. Remember what happened to those who were involved in the golden calf incident. And He said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay Every man his brother, and every man his companion. 
and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. And what happened to those two sons of Aaron? And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Friends, without divine warrant, at best, your worship will not be found acceptable in the sight of the Lord. But at worst, it will incur His righteous judgment and may even lead to your destruction. Anything that happens in the worship of God, whether public, private, or in family worship, it must come from the commands of God or it is an abomination unto Him. Friends, divine warrant is required. And next we see that strict obedience is commanded. Adherence to this principle is not a suggestion or even a matter of wisdom or Christian prudence, but instead it is a command from God Himself. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. You must observe to do what things soever He commands you. It's not an option. It's a command. Children, if your parents tell you to do something, what are you supposed to do? You do whatever it is that they commanded you. And if you don't, then there will be consequences such as spankings or time out. Adults, if your boss tells you to do something, are you expected to do it? Absolutely. To not do so would be insubordination and would likely result in you either being chastised or even fired. And if the government tells you to do something, understanding that we're talking about lawful things, then you're expected to obey them. To not obey is to incur the wrath of the sword. Throughout most of history, disobedience to the king would mean the death penalty. So when the king of kings, the sovereign over all things, the Lord of the universe, commands you to do something, what is expected of you? Is anything other than absolute obedience to the commands of the Lord acceptable? Of course not. To not obey the commands of the Lord is nothing but high-handed sin. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Or simply put, 
sin is not doing what God commands you to do or doing what God commands you not to do. So what is this command that you're to observe? What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. The command is that we are not to add unto the things prescribed by God, nor diminish from them. On this, Calvin writes, By forbidding the addition or diminishing of anything, he plainly condemns as illegitimate whatever men invent of their own imagination, whence it follows that they who in worshiping God are guided by any rule save that which he himself has prescribed make to themselves false gods and therefore horrible vengeance is denounced by him against those who are guilty of this temerity. Friends, you must not add to the worship of God any inventions of your own under pretense of making the parts of worship either uh, more significant or more magnificent. Nor should you diminish from it under the pretense of making it more easy or practicable. You cannot set aside anything that the Lord has commanded to be done, but you must observe to do all that and only that which God has commanded. And this principle is not new here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. We see nearly identical language back in chapter 4. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them that ye may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God commanded you. Neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I commanded you. And yet this sin of adding to worship or taking away from it is found all throughout Scripture. Cain's insufficient sacrifice. Those worshipers of the golden calf. Korah and his co-conspirators. Nadab and Abihu. And the list goes on and on and on. And yet the people of God do not seem to learn their lesson. Jeroboam established a feast day which he had devised in his own heart. Jeremiah speaks of the wickedness of the people's worship during his time in chapter 7 and verse 31. And they have built the high places to Tophet, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. It was not 
the heinous act of sacrificing their sons and their daughters in the fire that the Lord is highlighting as the wickedness of the people. It's the improper worship that they are rendering unto them by unto him by doing something which was so foreign to him that he says he not only did he not command them to do it but it never even came into his heart and so the question then is if Jehovah has consistently commanded his people to worship him in a certain way and any manner of worship not prescribed by Him was deemed a sinful abomination and resulted very frequently in their destruction, why would you be so foolish as to attempt to offer worship which He has not commanded? The question we should always be asking ourselves every time we come into worship is, has God commanded this? And if the answer is no to anything that has been done in worship, then it must be reformed. If God has not commanded it, then we ought not do it. This is true of our individual worship practices as well as our worship corporately. This regulative principle of worship must be the basis for why we do what we do. Disobedience to this command of the Lord will not only be an affront to a holy and righteous God whom we profess to worship, but it will bring us under His just judgment. Why is the evangelical church in such a terrible position today? Because they have forsaken the commands of the Lord. Why are Reformed churches so weak and sickly? Because we have allowed impurities and perversions to corrupt our practices. If you want to see the church thrive, obey the Lord. He promises to bless faithfulness. Friends, you must realize this is not an option, but that strict obedience is commanded. This principle is plain to see from Scripture So why then do the majority of professing believers not practice it? There are a myriad of reasons which can be given for why people reject this biblical principle but time forbids us from examining in depth all of them. Instead, I would like to spend the remainder of our time together by answering some of the most common objections that you will experience. Probably the most uh, common, the most heard objection to this principle is that it focuses upon the Old Testament but neglects the New. They argue that this command for only observing 
in worship, what the Lord commands is part of the ceremonial system. But in the New Testament, there's freedom. But Christ Himself affirms this principle in Mark chapter 7 and verses 7 and 8. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things ye do. Jesus cites these words from the prophet Isaiah, uh, disclosing that there is a continuity of of this principle between the Old uh, Testament and the New Testament. Yes, there are changes uh, involved in the abrogation of the ceremonial law. But there is no change in the divine prerogative of appointing the worship to be rendered in the church and by the church. William William Young shows that this divine prerogative is part of Christ, of who Christ is as the mediatorial King. And he says, Christ is the sole head and King over His body, the church. In the exercise of His headship and kingship, the Lord Jesus Christ has appointed the ordinances of His house. This applies in particular to the public worship of the New Testament church. To say that this principle is reserved only for the old covenant people of God is to strip Christ of His own crown rights. Something which every person professing His name should shudder at the thought of. And then another common objection is that this principle is legalism and it violates the liberty of conscience. We've already seen what Christ says to the Pharisees, those who truly were legalists, that they were guilty of violating this principle by imposing their man-made traditions upon others. The Apostle Paul speaks on this as well, calling this imposition of man-made traditions and regulations will worship in Colossians 2, verses 20-23. to Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world... Why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will-worship, in humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh." Robert Shaw, in his exposition of the Confession of Faith, points out that this is what happens when the regulative principle of worship is ignored. To introduce into the worship of God what may be deemed significant ceremonies under the pretext of beautifying the worship and exciting the devotion of the worshipers is to be guilty of superstition and will worship. It's absurd 
uh, to me that people think that obedience to God's commands is legalism. But yet they think that it is freedom to impose man-made innovations upon others. The only way in which a wor- in which a church can worship God and protect liberty of conscience is to observe the regulative principle of worship and to observe it as God has commanded. It liberates worshipers from the tyranny of churches that impose upon other people elements of public worship that have no biblical warrant. Friends, nothing you are instructed to do in worship here comes from the innovation of man or out of personal preference. It is in biblically regulated worship that true freedom is found. This isn't legalism. This is liberty. And then the final objection that I feel needs to be addressed is that while it may be true that God took improper worship so seriously that He killed people because of it uh, in the Old Testament, He is much more gracious now. You know, if you look, if you look at the majority of churches, they don't follow this principle and they're not being struck dead. So God must be more lenient, right? Friends, if this thought ever crosses your mind, immediately repent of it. How dare you play fast and loose with God's righteous indignation? is the death of just one person in all of human history for the sin of unauthorized worship not enough to strike terror into your heart? Do you not fear God? But friends, not only is it tempting God, this notion is that New Testament worship is safe compared to Old Testament worship, it's completely false. Scripture testifies to it. What do we see in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira withheld uh, their gift from the Lord? They were struck dead. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11 about the danger of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner in communion. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. People are dying. And what do we see in the epistle to the Hebrews? those who would have been very familiar with the story of Nadab and Abihu. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably 
with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That ought to remind you of that consuming fire which came down and consumed Nadab and Abihu. Dear saints, New Testament worship is not safer. God does not give a pass for will worship in this new dispensation because He's more gracious than He was before. That's rubbish. No, New Testament worship is just as dangerous, if not more, than that of the old. Because now you don't have an earthly priest entering into the presence of God before, uh, for you. No, now you enter into His throne room. You come before His presence and you give your sacrifice of praise yourself. Before, it was the priest who if, who if he approached God in an unauthorized way would be struck dead. Now it is you. The warning against improper worship is clear. The Lord very, may, very well may take your life as judgment for it. Do not tempt God. Brothers and sisters, the pattern for true worship is laid out before you in His Word. Nothing else but what God has commanded can be brought into His worship because it will profane what He has made holy. Do you dare think you can improve upon what He has instituted do you dare think that you can introduce your own innovations into worship and that they will be acceptable? Can your filthy, sin-stained hands do anything but corrupt what God has made holy? Friends, if we do not obey this command, if we do not observe this principle, then there's no reason to think that Jehovah will accept our worship. We are told to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So why would we neglect this truth that is so plain in Scriptures? Dear saints, for the sake of yourselves, for the sake of the church, and most importantly, for the sake of Jehovah's holy name, never forget this principle that the Lord regulates how He is to be worshipped in the Scriptures. Let us pray. Father God, we come to You and this is a humbling principle for us to grasp. Because it means we have to put aside our own desires, our own wants, our own preferences. You 
even our own convictions. And we must submit them to what You have revealed in Your Word. Father, let this principle be the guiding principle for how we understand worship in all of our life. Whether it be private, family, or public, let us understand that worship is always regulated by the Word. And that we cannot add to or take away from that worship. And Father, as we continue on in this series, let this principle be our guiding principle in examining the different parts of worship. And as we examine the different parts of worship, if we find where we are lacking, if we find where we are not in conformity with this principle, Father, move us to reform. Let us not be stuck in our ways Stuck in our traditions. Lord, let us always be seeking to reform ourselves more and more in alignment with the Holy Scriptures. Father, let us uphold this principle even among brothers and sisters who don't believe it. Let us understand that this principle doesn't go away when we visit uh, friends or family and churches who don't observe this principle. Let us not fall into sin for the sake of pragmatism. Let us hold to this principle and hold it as gospel truth. That it is good news. That we don't have to search out every different way in which we think you, could, you would want to be worshipped. But Lord, You have told us exactly how. And we can just submit to that in humble service to our King. Lord, let us never forget this. Let us always seek to glorify Christ, to glorify the Spirit, to glorify You, our Heavenly Father, in all that we do. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only King and Head of the Church. Amen.